from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, welcome to another episode of The Close-Up. Each week we present in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in cinema. It's June 24th, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we'll hear an excerpt from a recent conversation with Oscar-nominated and Emmy-winning director, writer, and producer Julie Taymor. Her latest project is a multi-camera film capturing a 2014 performance of her breathtaking production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Taymor discussed the process of bringing the production to the big screen in front of a packed crowd in our amphitheater during one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. After that, we'll listen to the Q&A that followed our sneak preview of The Overnight, a hilarious sex comedy starring Adam Scott, Jason Schwartzman, Taylor Schilling, and Judith Godresh. The film is now playing in select theaters before expanding to wide release this weekend. I know a bank where the wild time blows. And with the juice of this, I'll streak her eyes and make her full of hateful fantasies. I pray thee, gentle mortal, I love thee. <laughs> what visions have I seen? Methought I was enamored of an ass. There lies your love. Julie Taymor is known for her visually dazzling and inventive works for both stage and screen. Her big screen credits include Frida, Across the Universe, and Titus, and her work on Broadway includes the smash hit The Lion King. Her latest project presents an exciting synthesis of these two worlds. Working with cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto, known for The Wolf of Wall Street and Argo, and composer Elliot Goldenthal, Tamor's A Midsummer Night's Dream is an immersive and inventive film that allows audiences from around the world to experience the critically lauded production. Julie Tamor joined David Rooney from The Hollywood Reporter in our amphitheater to discuss the process of bringing her show to the silver screen and how it differs from typical film theater. So let's go now to an excerpt from that conversation. What? Jealous Oberon. As someone who sees a lot of theater and has seen quite a bit of film theater, I'm always skeptical when I approach the latter. They almost invariably flatten out the experience. That doesn't happen here. I think this is an incredibly vivid, immersive way to experience theater on a big screen. Tell us about how you approach that. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. getting a great DP like Rodrigo Prieto, who you'd work with on Frida, mm-hmm. is, is a key. But there must be many, many aspects of that toolbox. Well, I think, uh, first of all, you can see from the trailer, we, we didn't want to just shoot it live and project it live because there are limitations with that. So what we decided to do from, right from the beginning was to shoot four live performances with four cameras each. And if you could see from that, the audience was on three sides. And then there's one black wall, but you, you know. And when we shot those live performances, we had four cameras in four different positions. And for four performances, we moved those positions. So you had a lot of, you know, that's 16 camera positions, some with repeats. But the, the thing that makes this different than the NT Live or Met Live, which you know, Magic Flute was the first one on the Met Live, my production, is that we then did four days of pickups. So for all you film people here, that means for, for half a day, I could go in with my cameraman, Rodrigo and the other three great ones in particular, and go on stage with a Steadicam or a handheld or setups 
the audience was invited. We had to have an audience, but they knew that they were going to be seeing basically clips. They were going to be seeing scenes so that we could get in there. That's what makes it immersive, is getting on stage close and also encouraging the actors to tone it down a bit. Because after 12 weeks of full-out body comedy, actors have a tendency to, you know, fatten it up. And this, this gave us a chance to, um, to really go in and say, listen, you can be intimate here. You can actually do a monologue as if it's an interior monologue. And that, in a close-up with film, is the glory of doing Shakespeare on film, is the power to go in close. And the other thing is, when you're in a theater that has audience on three sides, imagine every audience member is going to get the back of actors a lot, because you have to keep you know, focusing, but not in the film. In the film, because we had cameras everywhere, if an actor is speaking, and we'll show you some of this, I think, but if an actor is speaking, we can show the reaction. We can get the reverse. So having a reverse shot in film and hearing, seeing and hearing the main actor speak, it actually enriches the, the dialogue. It enriches the comprehension. And then Elliot Goldenthal was uh, after I had 10 weeks of editing, like a normal movie. And then Elliot, who did the score live, he got to re go back in there and score it to an eye blink, which 30% which more music is in the film, and mm. that allowed it to have another level of emotion that you can't do live, because live has to have you know, expansion, and you, the audience, the actors are not going to be to a click track, you know? They're not going to make it that easy. We should also point out that the, the staging at the Polonsky Center was um, three sides. It wasn't a standard proscenium. The audience was on three sides of the stage, and a lot was also happening in the aisles. Um, so it's an incredibly mobile production, and there's a lot of movement on the stage. And vertical. And, yeah. There which was a, film is not. Film the, is horizontal. The opening, the stunning opening where Puck is literally transported into the land of dreams is completely vertical and uh, so there's a lot going on over your head as well and <laughs> I think the film in a way it kind of enhances the experience. I never thought I would say that but it, it, it not only captures it but I think it enhances this experience mm -hmm. by showing you details. But uh, you mentioned the editing process, 10 weeks. Tell us about how it was different from a standard edit. Well, I've never shot multi-cameras like this, which meant, and there was nobody else who could do this but me. I had to sit there at my computer and look at many more hours of film than I've ever looked at before. Because in a standard movie, which even The Tempest and Titus and the other films I've made were, were not doing multiple cameras. So this time I actually sat through 85 hours of material taking notes, and then with my, uh, my editor just spending that time picking out the best shots. Mm. Uh, then it's like a normal movie. Then it is. Once you've done your selects, you're, you're cutting it. And I don't think much, there might have been a couple of places where we cut, trimmed it from the live. Because obviously in live theater, to get his costume on and off, you see that on stage, you don't need that in the film. So we had to be very clever about how we could do it and not make the cinema audience go, huh, he was wearing a vest and now he's not wearing a vest. You know, you have to find those, those moments. Mm. Um, we mentioned it in enhancing the experience. One of the things I loved here was seeing, for example, uh, the wonderful Nick, uh, what's his name, Max Casella, who plays Nick yeah. Bottom, when he's transformed into a donkey, into Titania's mule, um, 
we see him operating the jaw mechanism of his headpiece. Right. I, I love that you see those theatrical details. You see the nuts and bolts of what what of the theatre craft of what has gone into putting this production together. Were there were there places like that specifically that allowed you to kind of invite an audience into we your process? To, we had to keep that as much as possible, because so you see the audience, you see that it is a live performance. You really forget about it. That's what this thing is. You see them and then you don't see them. That's no different than what I do in the theater like a Lion King where you see the manipulators, but after a while you know they're there, but you forget and you get into the story. That was the trick. That's what we were worried about. But besides Max doing his own mechanics with the mouth, he was the original Timon, by the way, um, so he, I knew he wouldn't be bothered by this, by having to manipulate. It's his face, it's actually his face, you know. We made a life cast and we pulled it out here. So the donkey is half human, it's got a mustache too. <laughs> so, and it's his real eyes. Um, you do see the mechanicals, the rude mechanicals who are the workmen from the Bronx, from Brooklyn, from Queens, Max Cassell and his gang. They actually are pulling up the silks. You probably see it more live, but we did establish it early in the film that you understand that this big canopy which is the major transforming object throughout the whole play, and it is the silk canopy upon which you can have projections, all the shadows. You know, this is a play about shadows, and nature is projected. Those you do see, you see the mechanics, and you also see the children are the most critical concept. Puck and the children are the most critical concept for the live and the film. The children, 17 children, I don't call them the fairies. Uh, I call them the rude elementals. You know, you have the rude mechanicals, if you know the play, that's the workman. But the rude elementals are the children, and they, they are beyond the fairies. They are raw nature, unfettered, prepubescent kids, prior to the rules of sexual behavior, marriage, you know, all of that. They are raw energy. That was the concept. I wanted hundreds, but we could only really fit 17. But it feels like hundreds. Feels like hundreds. They're, from time to time, they're in black, like in the Japanese theater, and they're manipulating these poles, bamboo poles, so they're a moving forest. Sometimes they create obstacles so that the Demetrius and Helena can't go further. They become the animals of the forest. The, the, there's these two lovely little girls who could do toe dance, and I made deer out of paper, deer masks, and they're with little sticks, they're, they're the deer and the dogs, all the kids become the wild, rabid dogs. And they, um, they become terror. They terrorize the four lovers. This also works very well on film. You can really feel them. And then at the end, which is very unusual, I think, they become, they are the fairies, Titania's fairies, but at the very end they become children. They're all dressed up in white and black party dresses and suits for the wedding, the grand marriage and celebration. And they be, you see their faces and their hair for the first time and that they're all races and ages. And then they sneak back to become the fairies because isn't that really what the children are anyway? They are our natural self. So that's, that was something that I feel was incredibly critical to the both film and theater. Tell us about, you know, just going back to you. Was there something for you about celebrating your roots, going back to something pure and liberating after, we don't want to go there, but, you know, after a pretty negative experience on Broadway with a show we won't name? Yeah. You mean Spider-Man? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I love Spider-Man, so that's all I'll say about that. I mean, to me, that was 
something joyous while I was in the throes of creation. Uh, I, I think that you do, you, it's not going back, it's what was appropriate mm. for the play and the space. If you're going to go to a two or three or 400 seat house, you've got limited budget, you've got limited time, plus it's a classic. It doesn't need to, you know, you have to do what the play demands. You have to create this supernatural world. You have to be able to find a way to have the lovers moving through a forest and all of that. But I did want to go more, um, like there is flying. Can you imagine? There is flying. That what felt is, very bold. It was bold, but Catherine wanted to do it. David Harewood wanted to do it. Actually, we cut his. Titania, you saw her enter. It's a rope with a person like this. It doesn't have computers, mechanics, and it takes much less time to tech. So as long as they were game, I was game. And, and it's not complicated. It's, it's even simpler than Peter Pan in most high school productions. So um, I, I think that, that I always, I don't think I went or have ever gone away from my roots. It, mm. just, it just is on different scales with different budgets. Perhaps because this is you know, Shakespeare's most joyous play, mm -hmm. there was this sense of you know, watching it both on stage and on screen, there's this liberating sense of almost purification. It's, yeah. it's such a joyous experience. Before we open it up to audience questions, um, you just came off a, an, an acclaimed run at the public theater of the solo play Grounded with Anne Hathaway playing a drone pilot. Another production that makes tremendously inventive use of lighting, video, sound elements in a highly cinematic way. Um, do you consider yourself more a creature of the theater or a film or of movies now? Or impossible to distinguish? Well, I would say that theater, I've been doing it since I was eight. I've been directing since I was 16 or so, and I grew up in the theater. So it comes more naturally just because of the amount of time I've, I've performed in it. I, you know, I, and, and I did it, and I had a theater company and all of that. But since I've been making films, my mind thinks like films as well. And what I do in cinema is often theatrical. It's not theater, it's theatrical. And what I do in theater is often cinematic. So for me, they cross over. It's mm. just very hard to make films. The, the, the meaning, not hard because it's hard to shoot them, but to get the money to do them is a lot more difficult than theater, this, unless you're doing very um, naturalistic, handheld, low-budget films. And it's not that I wouldn't do that, it's just that a lot of my films operate on multiple levels, so they require other support. Mm. So I don't do them as much. You know, it's much easier for me. I got grounded, was offered to me on, an, on, a, on a Sunday, and I said yes on a Monday. You know, it wasn't like, it's one person. There's four people backstage. It was a good play. And I said yes. And then tremendous support from the public theater. But I, I think when you're doing a film, the logistics. So I'd love to be doing more film. And I have a couple of projects and television projects that I'm working on. But it's easier for me to just do theater. Are there other classic theater texts that you would love to do on stage and then film them? Oh, sure. I mean, lots. I, I just, I, I would, any kind of, I'd love to do Timon of Athens as a film. Mm. I'd love to do Taming of the Shrew, another one. I mean, there have been some good ones. The, uh, I, I love the... Um, Liz, Liz Taylor, yeah, Richard yeah, Burton. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm. Uh, but I'd like to do it in a different way, and I won't tell you how, but, or who. But there are these plays, you can do them and do them. When I did The Tempest, of course there's never been a female Prospera on film, so you get a whole new perspective of that play with Helen Mirren playing Prospera. 
But there have been other directors' interpretations, like Peter Greenaway, which is nothing like it, mine. Mm. Or Derek The Jarman. Derek Jarman one is crazy. Nothing. So when you come to these great Shakespeare's, there are so many ways to do it, just like there are on the stage. So there, I would probably, any Shakespeare I decide to direct, I probably would eventually like to shoot it, because I, I really love Shakespeare on film. What you can get with that close-up and the reverse shots allows the audience really, really to, to comprehend it. If you don't, see, people are intimidated by the language. But if you see a close-up, you don't need to understand what a weeping welkin is. This is Titus. You get it from the landscape of his face, from the emotion of his voice. You can follow it. You can understand it. So people go, wow. I, you know, they go, I understood that. Doesn't mean you have to understand. None of us. I keep going, what's a welkin? You know, I could be directing it 10 weeks and go, what was that again? But I, if the actors know what they're doing, sometimes they don't in films and theater. They don't actually know. But if they do know, you will know. And I remember when I was t color timing Titus before it was digital color timing and there was no dialogue and you don't, you just see it. And the color timer said to me, he told me the whole story. He told me everything that was going on just by what he saw. And I think that film has that power with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let's hear some questions. Don't be shy. Right down the front here. heavily cut. Oh, in the theater. Yes. Um, I noticed that the text was heavily cut. So I was wondering what your process was for deciding what text to keep and what text not to keep. Yeah. In any Shakespeare's, I think that we, we have to remember that when they did them in his day, it was heavily cut. Um, the actors were very liberal about what parts of the Shakespeare text they would want and not want. And so this was not cut as, as much as my other Shakespeare's, not at all. It's a two and a half hour film. And probably from the theater to the film, I cut very little. But some, some I did. But on stage, I cut to clarity. I cut, I kept in things that other people don't keep in, like I put in a forest, you know, in a hunt. You saw that. Because I thought, well, what is this? But I cut when I felt it was either so unclear or redundant and added to added places that weren't in there. So you have to kind of, you know, sometimes, especially in movies, you want a visual, uh, what do you call it, like cleanse your palate so you can listen to all that dialogue. Remember in Titus, we, when we were shooting that, I had, if you've, you've all seen it, there's a hunt, you know, there's a hunt where the horses and it's all music in it. Well, like in a lot of movies, you get to the point where the producer says, you gotta cut something, too much money, cut the hunt. We got to the, we cut it in Rome, we didn't shoot it, and I'm going, mm, mm. and we get to the point where we're editing it, and everybody, including the producers, goes, you're gonna have to go back and shoot the hunt. Because it was, it's too much for the audience. You know, you need to have this, this, this uh, what do you, a washer mm. there. It's, it was, it was um, Aaron and Aaron. Aaron here and Aaron there, and it, it just didn't cut well. You can do that in theater, we expect it. You can have blackouts, you can have scene change music, but in film, you don't have that. Transitions are immediate. So these are the considerations of how, how you adapt from theater to film. Mm. Any more questions? Second row here. Austin, we'll just give you the mic. 
Hi, uh, I'm another contingent from the director's lab. This is a, a wonderful dinner break for us, so thank you. <laughs> uh, so if you think about The Lion King, that was uh, sort of an introduction for sort of many people to the concept of Broadway or for some theater. Uh, with the reach of uh, sort of this production, uh, for some it'll probably be their first introduction to Shakespeare as a whole. Uh, and I'm curious for how you specifically approach uh, sort of verse or that classic text for people uh, for whom that might not be sort of conventional, uh, both in terms of the close-up, as you mentioned, on screen, but when dealing with the thrust uh, at theater for a new audience, when you don't have the benefit of that close-up, how to make that accessible as well? Well, I really believe you start with the verse, and that and verse will tell you, the iambic pentameter will tell you where you should stress things. So that's your clue. It's a puzzle, and it's a clue into what the meaning is. And if you follow that, it's really natural dialogue. That's the beauty of Shakespeare. We're all kind of, oh my God, da-da-da, and is it da-da-da-da-da-da? It isn't. It isn't, but it will tell you, if, just as I'm speaking, where I would put my emphasis, you know, where I put my emphasis. You know, it, it, it will tell you what the meaning is. So we all work on the text just like normal theater. You know, you sit at the table. There's usually somebody helping us. You know, I've had Cicely Berry work with me, who's the very fabulous, famous one from England. And she's all about don't change your accent. You know, you had every kind of accent in Titus. Um, in Tempest, we, we, we went more towards British, more towards British. But in Titus, it was all over the map, Welsh, Scottish, American, British. Um, As they are here, too. Yeah, here it's, what, it's whatever. But I think that, that that is how you learn what the play is about. So you do start with table readings. And then I'm very much of a get off your feet quickly. Um, improvise, find out what this language feels like, uh, what is the character. Be really free about it. Because I don't want people to be too in their heads when they're, when they're developing stuff. Mm. You mentioned I'm directing an audience's attention, uh, yeah. directing focus, which is a difficult thing to do on stage when there's so much going on. Um, but is that easier uh, when you're in Make the editing film? room on this? Oh, to clearly. I, in theater, as you know, you're all theater people, right? This is the director's theater lab. You do it with lighting, too. You know, if you've got wraparound theater, the lighting is going to help the audience know. Obviously, they're also going to go to who's talking. That's usually the case. But you will see, when you see this film, I, I kind of went, ooh, there's a guy who keeps looking at other things. Because clearly, he's entranced by, he doesn't care she's talking over there. You'll see the audience, and he's looking somewhere else. But, but some of it is meant to have that. You know? So you have to, as a director, decide where it's OK to let people you know, have that and know that they're not going to necessarily hear everything. You know, because you've allowed them to, to take in the whole event of it. Film, much more. You, you cut, you use the close-up, you decide when it's a wide shot. You know, it's that, it's that, it's like, okay, Lion King is an example. It begins with the widest wide shot you could possibly have in the theater. People, animals coming from everywhere, all over, huge, massive, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to do next? You better go down to a shadow puppet this big and a light that small, which is the mouse. Because if you don't, you will never get that audience's attention again. So whether it's film or theater, you constantly balance the macro with the micro. Even in, in theater, it would be um, even the fact that it, if you go from a very loud musical moment, like the circle, uh, the circle of life in the beginning, 
the audience is, they're orally, they're at that point. Better you go small musically, because then they'll tune their ears again to pay attention. So these are tricks. You know, it's also going in theater, like big Broadway like that, you have, in, you have layers. The in one is the closest. And then you open up. And that's very, that is what film does. You go from the close, you know, if you watch how a film is cut, you usually don't cut from a medium shot to a medium shot. You, you always change, you, you, and you don't cut on the line. I mean, that's become a technique now, you know, over the last, whatever, 20 years. It's boring now, but, you know, where you go, dun, 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 dun. But in classic filmmaking, you, you will change angles mm. between shots. That's similar in theater as well. I'll just finish by asking, what's next? <laughs> okay. How many people saw Across the Universe? Okay. Well, I would like to make that into a musical on stage. Oh. See? There you go. Where are the people who can give me the rights? Um, <laughs> no, that would be... I've been working on that for seven years, trying to see how I could do that. I think it's... I, even when we rehearsed that movie with all those wonderful young people, who've grown into, you know, movie actors and stars and such. I, it was like doing, uh, uh, hey, Mickey Rooney, hey, let's make a musical. So it was really fun, and I want to bring that to the stage. So that's in process. The Beatles, the music rights are? It's, the mus it's getting the music rights that make sense for live theater, mm -hmm. because people will pay more for a film than they can for live theater. And ideally, would you do that first in New York or London? Or? I don't know. No, outside of New York. Mm. I kind of, from that other show that I did, <laughs> Forget about that. Yeah. Well, Lion King you did in Minneapolis, Yes, right? it's good to do it outside. You need to of be course. able to make your mistakes without people breathing down your neck. Um, I think that uh, Lynn and I have a couple, two, two television long-form projects that are in development that are very exciting. Uh, Fanny by Erica Jong, and I'm not going to say the other because I wanted to remain a secret till you will hear about it. But it is a it is epic. This this whole television thing has opened up for directors mm. to be able to do tell stories over a longer period of time. And then I have did you did scratch I, the surface of any cable drama right yeah. now and the writers' room is full of playwrights and the directors That's, have all come from right. theater or film. Yeah. Mm. And then there are two movies that are in process, two feature films. How many saw Juan Darien? Uh oh. See? <laughs> That's a good thing. Now you're going to see it as a movie because it is. It was done years ago. That's why you're all too young. You were just in your cribs at, at that point. But Juan Darien was a, is, was Elliot Goldenthal and my. That was our first work together for Music Theater Group, and it's a South American tale about a jaguar that becomes human, and then through fear of the outsider is abused and burnt alive and transforms back into a jaguar. It's an Uruguayan tale that we had done for Music Theater Group and at Lincoln Center. And was on Broadway, Lincoln Center, so where were you? Um, <laughs> and that we're trying, I, I loved making Frida, and Rodrigo loves this, and I love my Mexican partners and team, so we hope that will be developed over this year as a, as a low budget, but a feature film with visual effects and animation and live action. I mean, I don't think you can train jaguars, so we have to find a way to, to do the jaguars. We should add on your Mexican theme that you just did, Lion King in Mexico. Yeah, it just Mexico opened City. the Mexican Lion King. What an amazing experience that must have been, just doing that show all over the world. It is. In different we're versions. going to China this year. Wow. And, and we've done it in China in English, but now we're going to do a Chinese Lion King. Okay, so unless anyone wants to jump in with one final question, I think we're done. Let's please thank Julie Taymor for... Thank you. Mm -hmm.
and thank you all for coming. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films, get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news, share with friends via social media, create your own custom schedule, and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program. We just um, moved here from Seattle. Well, welcome. Thank you. Wow. Max is really taking a shine to your boy. Tonight is our regular pizza night. We could turn it into a welcome the neighborhood get together. Huh. It could be fun. Go on a Whole Foods <laughs> now. Any dietary restrictions? I don't think Screw so. Screw it. You guys, I'm so excited. Yay! All right. Oh, wow. The Overnight stars Adam Scott and Taylor Schilling as Alex and Emily, a married couple who have recently moved to Los Angeles from Seattle. When they meet Kurt, an assertive artist played by Jason Schwartzman, they're offered a sudden but friendly invitation to join him and his French wife, played by Judith Godresh, for dinner. What begins as an innocent opportunity to meet new friends in a new city becomes something much stranger as the night goes on. The Overnight is a fresh and original comedy from writer-director Patrick Bryce. It keeps the audience at the edge of their seats as Kurt and Charlotte steer the evening into increasingly bizarre and unsettling territory all while delivering gut-busting comedy every step of the way. Following a sneak preview of The Overnight, Patrick Bryce joined actors Jason Schwartzman, Adam Scott, Judith Gordresh, and producer Naomi Scott for a lively Q&A. The evening was moderated by Nicholas Kemp of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. So let's have a listen. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming tonight. Yeah, thanks for watching the movie. That is what you all just did, right? <laughs> okay, good. Great. Well, um, let's start at the beginning. Um, Patrick, could you tell us a little bit about the origin of the project and its journey to screen? And since we have so much of the, the cast here, I'd love to hear from you guys um, what it was about the script or about Patrick that made you decide to sign on. Yeah, well, I had just made this film creep with Mark Duplass. Um, he's just he's just a good friend of mine, and I uh, became a collaborator. You know, I I was in film school actually at Cal Arts when I met him, um, and he'd seen my thesis film, which was actually a documentary, and he he really dug it, and he was kind of I don't know giving giving me advice, trying to figure out what was going to happen coming out of school, and we came up with this idea for this kind of experimental found footage movie that we ended up going and making. And once uh, I was getting to the point of being done with that, uh, we were talking about the idea of making a small movie, kind of taking, you know, Mark Mark has this kind of, he's, he's really nailed down like this uh, way of making films for cheap that would feel much bigger than, than their budget. And, uh, and it was out of those conversations that I went and, and wrote uh, The Overnight. So, yeah. And how'd you guys get involved? Um, uh, Mark Duplass sent uh, Naomi and I the script a couple years ago. Uh, We were looking for something. uh, We wanted to do a feature. We had started a company and wanted to do our first feature. And we really connected with the script. And um, as an actor, I just sort of thought that there was something about 
the the place in their lives that my character and Taylor Schilling's character are in, where we're sort of uh, ready for some sort of change or reinvention, but we're also we we have kids and we're we have these deep roots in our family, and although we're in this new city and we there's a period of transition in our lives physically but emotionally um, we're not really you know we're not aware that we're on the brink of this big change and then everything everything that we think we know about ourselves and how, where we are in the world and how we look at the world kind of changes in, in just this one really weird night and I, I thought it was uh, really interesting and super funny and I, I, from a production standpoint, it was a Patrick script was a gift. It was super contained. We had about four locations, and wardrobe was down to basically two nights, maybe three. And um, four main cast. I think there were a total of you know the two kids, and it was just it was really great first feature to produce. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, so you've got these really hilarious four-person set pieces, um, but I, I was really struck by the pairings, the four different pairings that you had, each of which had its own kind of unique chemistry, sometimes unexpected chemistry, and um, I'm wondering if you guys could talk about how you developed those individual pairings. Well, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, we developed them during the production of the film, basically. Uh, you know, the first time actually, I mean, this was this was a, a, a two-week shoot. We shot the movie in 12 days, um, 10 nights and two days. Uh, and we had all made, we, we'd all hung out as a group once, I think, prior to actually making the movie. Uh, I think actually Jason and Judith met each other on set the first day. And so it was... <laughs> Hey, husband. Hey, wife. And uh, so, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of time to really develop it. It, it was just, you know, uh, a matter of uh, uh, me having individual conversations with all the actors and sort of talking about the script and uh, kind of explaining, the, you know, the way would, we would be approaching it. You know, on the page, this, this script reads fairly broad. And I, you know, wanted to make it clear that, you know, the way in which we were shooting it and then the way in which we were going to engage the performances, it was going to hopefully, you know, feel grounded and real and sort of a little more new, loose and, and uh, natural. Yeah. And Adam and Jason and Judith, what was it like rehearsing these pairings and also the, the four-person set pieces, which were just gut-busting hilarious? What do you mean rehearsing? Because we haven't rehearsed at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, maybe talk a little bit about that. I, I think that, you know... For some reason, everything that happened during, before, and after this film was kind of like meant to be, even the fact that we did not have a lot of days to shoot it, because we shot it in 11 nights. And um, I think that it's bringing, the fact that you know, we, we, we did not have a lot of time, it's bringing, I mean, it helped me in my acting. And actually, the fact that we did not rehearse, we, we basically, everything was very spontaneous. and. Um, and because the script was so well written, it would give us a frame in, in which we could like improvise and, you know, um, uh, it, it seemed like actually having more time to shoot. I mean, I don't know how you feel. I didn't felt like I was missing any takes or, you know, obviously it was no. very 
there was a lot of harmony and everything went very smoothly. I never felt any pressure. Yeah, even I mean, even though we were under the gun time-wise, we still we still made our days. You know, every day we were shooting, and I think you know a part of that is because we sh because we did shoot at nighttime. There was this kind of like urgency to get everything done so that we could go to sleep because we were all worried about. I think you know like. Um, you know, all these guys have kids and uh, are having to be parents at the same time. Uh, but you know, it's it, it. There was there was this extra pressure, but also at the same time, I think it just created this um, unbelievable focus. You know, I, I mean, really, while we were making this movie, the only thing that mattered to all of us was the movie. You know, and like the nighttime, I think has a lot to do with that because, um, you know. During the day, there's so much going on in, in, in everyone's life, and especially with phones and conversations that you're having and ongoing text conversations and stuff. Because it was at night, everyone we knew was asleep, you know? And so it really was, it was like, you know, people often refer to like shooting a movie on location as being something that really can bring a group of people together, you know, because you're, you're truly kind of isolated. And same with companies going retreats, the company retreats. All that's designed to bring you together because it's taking you out of your, you know, routine. And for us, I think the night hours were that. Um, it really was like there was nowhere to go. Um, and also, um, it was, you know, we, we just, we shared a green room. All the actors shared a green room. And um, we were together all the time. So there was nowhere to go but to each other. And, I mean, it could easily have, like if there was a bad apple, it would have been terrible because the crew was only 16 people or 15 people too. So if there was a bad apple and there's nowhere to go but to each other and it's terrible, that would have been a very unpleasant, you know, shoot. But it ended up being so, it was just <clears throat> so wonderful. I think Patrick and, you know, and Naomi too is sort of being these like captains to us were so positive and so optimistic. And Patrick laughs really well, he's a great laugher, and and I feel like he would always just like fill us with, and the whole crew with like a sense of just like fun that this is all going to be great. Yeah, and if Patrick's it was so fun. If Patrick's laugh ruins a take, it's worth it because you know that yeah. it's, uh, you did yeah, well. Absolutely. Put it on your business card. I was also thinking as you were I can't laugh on cue, but I will laugh at some point for you guys. I promise. No, it's it's something else, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, also, you know, I just, now that you're talking, Patrick, about having kids, we do have kids, and, like, my kids were sleeping, you know, at home the whole time, so it was sort of like the movie, because I would go home in the morning, and she'd be like, hey, good morning, Daddy, how are you? I'm like, I'm okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, did you have any good dreams, anything? How was that? This is good, how was work? It's good, it was good. Um, I think, so, what do you want for breakfast? And it was sort of very much like that. Um, which is kind of like the movie, but like stretched out over, you know, you know, 12, 10 nights, 11 nights. Uh, the nighttime theme is interesting because I was really struck by the look of the film and the fact that you have all these um, light sources that are part of the set that are on screen, all this backlighting. Um, and I'm wondering, Patrick and Naomi, if you could talk about working with your cinematographer and maybe your inspiration for those, those shots. Yeah, um, we were just blessed to have uh, John Gulasarian as our DP. Uh, he shot like crazy, and uh, um, what else? What was that time travel movie? About, about time. About time, yeah. 
And you know, he was. He, we already had, uh, had his wife on board. Actually, Teresa Gulasarian is our production designer. She painted all the butthole paintings in, in one night. In she one painted night. all of those. Someone flaked, so she had to paint them all the night before we shot that scene. <laughs> she was texting me pictures of buttholes at like three o'clock in the morning, just saying, "You are you happy with this?" You know. <laughs> uh, were those? Did she have any guidance, or is that like right? That's that's where she was. She also from. she also sent me a text saying, uh, "Here's a tip: never Google the word butthole." Or <laughs> do, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, hold on. But yeah, that, I mean, I guess that's one of the things that came out of, you know, I, I mean, you know, when you're making a movie, you're just being presented with a set of problems every day and all you're doing is solving problems, right? And so the problem we had at that at the moment of, you know, deciding the visual palette of the film was how do you make one location feel dynamic? How do you make one space feel dynamic? And, you know, that was something John and I were really conscious of and, you know, but, you know, it's it, it's too bad that I didn't have time as much time as I would probably want to prepare with the actors. But I had like three weeks to sit on John's couch and watch movies, you know, and talk about talk about um, you know shot listing the film. And so we we watched stuff like Itumama Tambien. Uh, we watched The Beat My Heart Skipped. Uh, we watched Dog Tooth. We were just like t- thinking about these movies that you know used handheld camera in a really like deliberate way. Like I love handheld, but it, sometimes it gets overused, and we wanted you know the scenes to kind of feel loose, but also you know uh, intentional at the same time. And also you know this came as just a fact of the fact that we were trying to shoot the movie so quickly. We we pretty much only used practical lighting for the whole movie you know we had special light bulbs and all the all the lamps that were in the rooms so our, our poor gaffer was just just itching to hang lights up and we kept telling him no this is this is the way we want things to look um so you know i feel like you know one of the ways we were able to kind of compensate for uh you know, using you know this one location was we would light the the rooms differently and, and sort of expose them to different colors. So these these great oranges in the house, and then you know in this this scene where they go to the massage parlor, like you know I we were talking about like Enter the Void and and the opening scene of Belly, um, you know where like people are using black light as black light, where you're seeing the black light show up on actors' teeth, you know, when Judith smiles at the end of that scene. Um, and so it was just like, it, I mean, it was just such a, <laughs> it was just like, it's such a fun, like run and gun way to make a movie, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I saw, I think, a interview with you or the, uh, Patrick, where there, you were talking about maybe the movies that changed your life or something like that. And I, I thought it was really interesting and I'm curious for you and maybe for any of you, um, if there was one movie or movie going experience that um, made you realize that this is what you wanted to do yeah uh, it's I mean it's so funny because this ha- like it has nothing to do with this movie but it was it was watching the movie Wings of Desire when I was 13 like that was I'm, I'm like a huge I love Vim Vendors and I love uh, David Lynch and it's guys like that that really you know got me into wanting to make a movie it was you know sort of seeing uh, uh, I guess like the subconscious on screen you know and there was a connection with that um, and that's what you know made me want to make stuff but it also you know this was a kid who had grown up watching the naked gun and, and airplane and you know and the blues brothers like over and over again with my dad so you know 
one thing, you know, I, I know all those movies kind of ended up informing me in some way, but yeah, it was kind of an, an amalgamation of, of that, that was kind of stuff. Anyone else have a good one? Uh, for me, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember it very clearly and um, very clearly to myself was like, that's what I want to do. That looks really fun. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I still watch that movie, like, every six months. It's the best. Yeah, you know, growing up, like, like in, the, in L.A. and in the 80s, um, I never, like, had a moment when I was little where I was like, I'm going to, I want to do that because it just seemed like it were all these huge budget type movies and they just seemed so exciting, big movies, big movies. And it was like Arnold Schwarzenegger and just people that were so, I just couldn't totally relate to. Um, but I loved the movies. And also in L.A., yeah, I can't relate to Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. Um, and, um, and also in L.A., you know, like I'd go get my hair cut and like the girl would cut my hair would have these um, like headshots of kid actors, like heads, like hairs that she cut. And I just remember thinking like that is a different type of pe person. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 just a different. There's it's more gel. It's spikier, and it's like cocky on a level. Like like there was like I think I always say, but I think there was like a picture of like a kid, like as an astronaut, like. And I just thought like, and it was like looking right at me when I get my hair cut, and I was like, wow. And so I got more into music because I felt like music was more like. Slightly personal, and it was. But I watched a lot of weird movies growing up. Because um, we had cable, and um, and they had played the weirdest movies ever, uh, at, late at night. And um, but it wasn't until I was maybe when I was 17, I saw um, Dog Day Afternoon, and it really was like it made me sort of feel like what a record made me feel like, like I could really it was a different experience for me. So maybe that one. What about you, Naomi? I have weird reference. I mean, I I grew up watching Grease. Like, I just loved musicals and I loved girls singing and yes. going through yes. puberty or whatever. I just I was really <laughs> attracted to that little fox. Like, just stuff, just cool, cool shit, cool girl movies. Great. Well, that's enough for me. So we're gonna open it up to questions from the audience. We have a microphone, so please wait until you've got the mic to answer. You know, I also want to. I'm sorry. I want to oh, say. Go for it. I, 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 this just occurred to me, and I, this is actually this was huge for me as a kid. Was War Games? Oh yeah. Not as much the movie. The movie is brilliant and really holds up well. But the audience. I remember yeah. being in this hot, crowded theater as a kid watching War Games. And they had that audience in the palm of their hand. Like, they played that audience like a violin. It was, you could hear a pin drop. There was crazy laughter. There was gasps. I mean, that movie is so suspenseful. It's yeah. a John, uh, John uh, Badham. Is it John Badham directed that? He, I mean, that movie is masterful. But I remember, like, it was so exciting in that movie theater. And that's why these screenings for our movie have been so satisfying is because the audience it really it's been a fun thing to listen to audiences reacting to it 
Great. So, who's got a question? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I didn't mean that, that's great, Adam. <laughs> Glad you had fun with war games, Adam. Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. They hate war games. All right. So right there in the hat. They hated war games. Look, they're all leaving. <laughs> oh, come on. It's not war that games was great. Matthew Broderick. It was Matthew Broderick really in a prime moment. It's, come on. It's a wonderful time. Dabney Coleman. I mean, come on. You can't go wrong. Mom. 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 Ma, even my mom left. Sorry. It's my agent. Sorry. She always leaves. Uh, when you were writing the screenplay, did you build the story scene by scene until you had a story arc, or did you have a clear like beginning, middle, end when you began? Uh, so I, I don't know how to write a script uh, <laughs> besides this way, which is like just basically just doing a brain dump on, onto a Word document at first, and that's just like going moment to moment, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then I you know I sort of have this like swamp like muck of just misspelled, you know, scene by scene, basically just describing what's, what is happening, you know? And it's, it's within that, that I, that I see where the, hopefully where the arc is. And then, you know, that gets transferred to another outline that is, you know, much more put together. And then when I'm finally writing in final draft, I'm basically going sentence by sentence and, this sentence is a scene, or this sentence is half of a scene, and then building the dialogue from there. So it's this kind of, you know, it's a way to sort of satisfy the, like, I don't know, the, like, I guess, like, child mind, you know, where, like, you need to just sort of, like, make a mess and finger paint, and then sort of pick up the pieces from there, and, and, and look at it, and see what works, so. Well, could I say one thing? You don't know how to write a script, but I will say, that's what he says but the script was like one of the best scripts ever that I ever read it's so funny and it was so elegantly written too because as you see it's very you know it's very um, the doses have to be right of these two things and I think he, like when you're reading it it's even very apparent like the way it was written like exactly who Patrick was and what he wanted to do so I'm, whatever I'm, he dumped it got Totally, it was amazing to read it. It was a yeah, it was it was it was a great it was a great dump. Thanks, man. I, uh, <laughs> Terrific dump. <laughs> I'm I'm like a really picky person too, and I'm 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 you know I'm a I'm I'm really hard on myself, and so um, you know I'm really trying to listen to my intuition the entire time, and if something's not working, and I'm getting that itch that it's not working, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it out. And, and force myself to, to, to at least try and make it better, you know? And, I'm, and that's happening on a, on a moment-to-moment, scene-by-scene, piece-of-dialogue-by-piece-of-dialogue basis. Isn't it true, too, you don't like to save? Oh, okay. God. Uh, so oh, yeah. so I, I, another, another screenwriting tip, uh, save your, your screenplay <laughs> when you're writing it, because I, uh, I, I was actually, I was in that process of transferring from the outline to the, to, to the actual script, and I deleted the first draft of this script on page 70. And, uh, you know, just uh. a thing came up. It said, would you like to save? And I looked at it, and I was like, that's not the right name. But... No, I don't want to save. And it was just fucking gone. Um, you dummy. <laughs> it worked out. It's fine. You know, we're here. We're all here right now. So did you just have to rewrite it from, from memory? Oh, my God. Well, yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, I still had my outline. 
So I, I was, I, but yeah, yeah but, but there were probably like little bits of oh dialogue God, that so, you were like, oh yeah, oh no, God. Just, was like the first draft like so much better. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That is crazy. All right, I'm really intrigued by your decision to show a male nudity because um, I feel like um, just in today's media you don't really see a lot of like dicks. I guess you always see a lot of like you know like. Like, fe- like naked female bodies, like on Game of Thrones or something, or just like any other movie. But like, I was just like wondering like what that decision process was like. If that's important. At all. Yeah, no, that was like, I mean, that was something I wanted in the movie even before I deleted the first draft of the script. Uh, you know, I, I going going into it, that was like something I was very excited about. You know, I, it's I, you know, it's funny. I've been going back and. Uh, like every time I watch a Farrelly Brothers movie, I get reminded of like you know they had those guys. Those guys are like the David Cronenbergs of comedy. You know they are just obsessed with bodies and orifices and the things that bodies do, and just weird shit with 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 bodies. And you know they sort of I don't know watching like the movie like there's something about Mary or even like there's a dick in Hall Pass that's really amazing. Um, <laughs> it's like worth watching the whole movie for actually. Uh, like I don't know, it just gave me a lot of agency to say, you know, you could you can do whatever you want going into this, and and I just felt like I, that was this showing the male nudity in this way and having it there, hopefully for a reason, and being really intentional with it, and having it not just be something to have in, thrown into the film, but have something, you know, have it have it there to actually further the plot and hopefully make you learn something more about these characters and hopefully make you laugh at the same time, you know, I w- it was something that was really exciting for me, yeah. So as a viewer, the only relief from the suspense I got was when the couples bickered, and I was wondering if on set as actors, if it felt the same way, like there was so much tension, even when there wasn't a lot of action, did you feel the tension that gives us the thrill as the audience, like while you were filming? I may be crazy, but and I could be wrong, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't feel any tension. <laughs> right? I mean, I didn't, when, so when we were making it, I felt like it was a great, it was great, and you know, I do think that um, Judith is right about the, the working so quickly, there isn't a lot of time to overthink a lot. Um, we never felt rushed, but there was always a feeling of forward momentum. And, um, you know, also at night, there's a kind of deliriousness uh, that comes along with that too that I, I really think all of this just contributed to this strange like environment that we were working in because it honestly really didn't feel tense and it also never felt like we were messing around. It was somewhere in the middle of just a really nice hard-working group of people that was always there for each other. But it never felt tense. Yeah, I never, I never felt that way either. And I know the, 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 that film creates, that this film creates that feeling for sure. And it's funny because like, I didn't, I didn't know how much it was going to. You know, I knew we were kind of maybe pushing people's patience a little bit by having, um, I don't know, these scenes play out in the kind of like slow, breezy way that they do. You know, it kind of great. You're like waiting. You're wait because like I, I think we're so conditioned, especially with comedies. You know, to just like wait for the joke. And this movie kind of, it, it takes its time a little bit more, for better or worse. And that was, 
I mean, that was like a hunch that we had kind of going into it tonally. Um, and, you know, because this is a film where the characters are kind of slowly discovering each other, you know, it was a way to sort of con- hopefully contribute to the, to, the, to the narrative tension in the movie. And I think with the tension, I mean, uh, Judith, I think your character had a bit more of that with the two, with, um, with Adam's character and with Taylor's. Can you talk about um, how you navigated those two relationships a bit? Um, tension. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't feel any tension. Uh, I think that, you know, um, she is kind of following the path of her husband and trying to, like, accomplish something. Although, you know, I I actually don't think that they have prepared anything or, like, you know, I think they're, like, really spontaneously doing whatever they're doing and then the the evening goes like smoothly or not smoothly but it's not like they have a plan really except that obviously the desire of having sex with those two guys I think that because my character um, ultimately you know I guess um, she's not having sex anymore with her husband and I I don't think her goal is to have sex with Taylor really but then she's kind of like trying to put Adam in into Jason's bed. So I guess that I'm kind of left with no, no one. I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, no, I didn't felt any tension. I felt that you know, um, she is. Um, I thought what what was interesting is that French women are supposed to be so open-minded, and it was interesting to surf on the wave of that cliche. And obviously, you know, she might be very open-minded, but at the end of the movie, obviously, she is not really accomplished, or she's still looking for, you know, the answers or the question. Or, <laughs> but um, I didn't feel any tension. But I have to say that, you know, this final scene where we all kissed each other was pretty magical, and. Um, there's this kind of like fear when you're shooting a film and you have to kiss someone who's not a stranger because you're working with that person but it doesn't you know make this person your best friend or your lover or someone you really know and you suddenly have to kiss each other and for some reason i i i, I did kiss a few people in in, in movies and and uh this scene was one of the one i liked doing the most because there was such a magical ambience um, that day and doing, you know, I think it's such a a human movie that when those people end up kissing each other, something actually naturally happened that kind of like, you know, the movie stole from us in a very beautiful way. Like, you know, it took something of us without us really knowing, I think. It's, I think when I see that scene, I'm like, wow. You know, this is cinema. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Round of applause for that. Yeah. All right, I think we have time for, um, like, one more question. Does anyone have one? Oh, way back, yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed the film, and it reminded me a little bit of Flirting with Disaster, kind of in that... It's a comedy, but you don't really know where it's going, and you're a little bit frightened as the film goes on that it could go very south on things, and I thought that was effective. Um, You nailed something because Patrick was just talking about that movie tonight and showed showed a clip of it at a talk we just did, 
And we reached, asked to show a clip from a movie, and Patrick's was from. Uh, I'm a little bit so. psychic. Jason's was from Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm just wondering, when you were talking about the scene of the kissing at the movie, what sort of order of the film, since you guys didn't really get a chance to rehearse things, was just the filming taking place where you come to a scene like that? Is that happen at the end of the shoot? Or yeah, we, sh- we shot basically in order. I mean, it, that was the last, the last scene we shot in the house, right? And we were all really, it's like that there's always one of those scenes in every movie where everyone's just like, oh shit, there's that scene. And everyone's nervous about it because it's, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, But I'm so happy that uh, Naomi and Patrick kind of scheduled the movie as as they did because it it was handy to shoot chronologically. But also, by the time we shot it, we all knew each other really well. We'd spent 10 nights together and... And uh, so by the time we shot it, it was really not a big deal. I mean, we did, the first take was all giggles for all of us. And uh, we got that out of the way. And then it was just totally fine and enjoyable and funny. And it was it was not that big of a deal. And um, every time I see it, I just, I, I love it. I, I, like uh, Judah said, it's, it's, uh, there's something really special about it. Yeah, and, and not only um, did you guys know each other well at that point, you knew the movie yeah. at that point, you know? And it really was affected by what we'd already shot. And, um, you know, that's a crazy privilege to be able to have, especially with a moment like that. Um, and so it just, uh, I, like, it was, I mean, yeah, no, like, it's, I mean, I'm, like, getting chills. It was, like, one of the best nights of my life uh, filming that scene. And I, I was not expecting that whatsoever, you know? We actually all ended up having sex, as you can <laughs> With Patrick. Well, on that note, uh, thank you all for coming. Um, the overnight opens Friday at Angelica Film Center, so send all your friends. And Patrick, am I right that Creep opens soon, too? Yeah, Creep will be out on iTunes on June 23rd, so go all get right. it. Well, check that out. Thanks, thank you guys everybody. So thank you for coming. Thanks for staying with me. Thanks. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>